Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I am Liz Medishall. And I am Ulrich Brissell. This week we have Darren Lynn Boseman. It's like going to Vegas. I've, I've hit a blackjack three times in a row. I should walk away from the table, but I'm doubling down again. And I'm like, so the last thing that I want to do is do a less enthralling, less good Saw movie than I did 2008 whenever I finished it. So I'm already competing with myself. Who talks with us about his latest feature, Death of Me. And also he dabbles in some updates regarding his contribution to the Jigsaw franchise, Spiral. But before we get to uh, Darren, network. Listen to me. Television is not the truth. We'll tell you anything you want to hear. We lie like hell. So this week on Network, we're going to do a little bit different. We're going to actually talk about ourselves for once in our lives. We never talk about ourselves anymore. Very rarely do we do updates on what we're doing. Um, but Liz, why don't you start? What's going on with you? What's it? What's going on in your life right now? I'm doing a lot of writing. So I quit my job uh, two weeks ago. I gave my notice. Thank you. It was. It's probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Uh, and I decided I'm going to be a consultant and make my own hours and be my own boss. But I'm also leaving time throughout the week to write. And I've started writing a horror script. And I've started giving, finally giving my my notes on the Lady Parts script. And um, I've also started to outline a third script. So I'm just trying Whoa. to be, <laughs> I mean, for me, it's like I'm realizing it takes me a long time. To polish a script after I write it and we're in a pandemic and I'm not I don't have the green light to produce anything so I'm just going to write as much as possible and I'm really really excited about this horror film because I want it to be super gross and gory and I really want to do that so yeah what are you up to that's exciting well hey before we jump to me like so the horror film you've you've tried to write horror before <laughs> you have written horror before right and I tried. this is going to be like a, a pretty big deviation from your last two movies so yeah. can you just talk about like why you were inspired to do like a hardcore horror movie a few things these are really dorky so for my birthday sean bought me a cameo from joe bob briggs and joe bob's <laughs> joe bob briggs was like liz you know, because yes, you know, he's following the script probably is like, where's your entrance into the hardcore horror, you know, uh, genre? And I was like, yeah, you're right, Joe Bob. Like, Why am I not making a horror film? So he actually kind of spurred it on. I wanted to make a horror film for a while. My husband and I, we watch a lot of horror films. We watch um, everything on Shudder. He's got like every franchise of every horror film known to mankind. Uh, so I've got the education. It's a feminist horror film, but it's about the perils of female friendship. And it's going to be Ooh, a lot of practice. I know it's going to be <laughs> it gets dark and it's going to have a lot of practical effects and a lot of gore. And um, it's all inspired by a dream I had. So what's different is, yeah, I tried to set out and I'd write a horror film a long time ago and it ended up with a sci-fi dramedy romance called Speed of Life. But this time I've outlined a very simple concept about of like um, a demonically possessed item. It's kind of like an Annabelle type thing. There's no romantic subplot and it's 
the first film I'm writing that isn't about relationships between a man and a woman in a romantic sense. So it's going to be different. That's awesome. Well, it sounds exciting. I can't wait to hear more about it, you know, and and, uh, as someone who is like, been feeling the urge to write a lot lately and feeling the urge to get back to like the forming of a movie from the start into like what it will eventually be a script and eventually be a movie like it sounds really exciting because because that's sort of where I am I'm like I'm just right at the finish of the alternate like I keep on saying I want to picture lock this week I want to picture lock this week but then something gets in the way something stops it and then me and and one of my investors are like really like diving deep into like nitpicking the crap out of the movie right now and just like making sure everything is perfect and he keeps on throwing new ideas at me and that like is good because it's like okay like it's challenging me to like think about okay is this the right thing what is the right answer to this should i just leave it as is is it actually working better than he's saying or is there a better solution and like you know his ask of me as you know a producer and an ep is like you know, you don't have to do anything I say, but like you, I want you to take the time to listen to all my ideas. That's the thing I was willing to, to do. Like this guy, it's, it's kind of amazing because I, I don't want to get into it too much, but like he's sort of like really, really involved with the movie. Like from when he ju- jumped on like three weeks or a month before we started shooting, like he's re- read the script like probably 10 times. We did like a bunch of different drafts on it together, reading up to production at the end and post like, you know, he wanted to see, as I was editing, he wanted to see everything. So I would send him scenes as I was editing and he would give me feedback on scenes and we would talk about them. And then when the movie was done, he gave me notes. And I, I've probably spent more time on the phone with him talking about the movie than anybody else. And he's probably watched the movie almost as much as me, if not, maybe even more potentially. Like I'll send him a Vimeo link or whatever and I'll see the count go from like, like three, five, 20, 30, you know and like i mean he's not the only one on the link but it's like i know that a lot of that is from him so it's just like Like, i love that he he cares cares. and and it's kind of an amazing thing because like you know when you when you're a filmmaker you're like a writer a director a producer and an editor it's like you're obsessing over your movie and you're kind of the only one like you have some friends who will watch it producers will watch it people will give you feedback but when you're taking on so much and you're taking on the editorial position and the director position it's like you don't really have a lot of other support of people obsessing over the movie the way that you are so it's kind of amazing i have this guy who's obsessing over the movie as much as me because it allows me to like have another perspective and then also bounce like you know if he has an idea i can be like oh that's a terrible idea my idea is better or it's like, oh, wait, I have this problem. What do you think? Oh, maybe it's not as big of a problem as I think it is. So it's it's kind of like been an amazing collaboration to have this this guy, this uh, EP, who's just all in, you know? And he gets very passionate, and, like, we definitely disagree, but, you know, it hasn't been a problem yet. And, you know, he's, he's, he's allowed to have me, like, you know, even though he's an investor, too, he's like, you know, it's your movie. I'm not going to ask for a final cut or anything like you get to decide. He just wants you to listen. But like there's something in the way you said, like you keep on trying to picture lock, but you haven't been able to. But I just want to kind of remind you and anyone else who may be listening, like you're still within a year of shooting it. You know what I mean? I know we just talked to a bunch of people who like work with like two month timelines of editorial, but it's like you've been working very fast. 
I think it's okay to keep noodling. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I just, you know, there are film festival deadlines to consider. And I mean, I already submitted the rough cut to Sundance, which I'm not sure was the best idea, but, you know, we did it and whatever. South by Southwest still hasn't even announced their submission deadlines yet. And I don't know what the hell is going to go on with that film festival, if they're even going to have it or whatever. I know they had some financial issues. So I actually just emailed them the other day just to ask, like, what is going on? Like, when are you going to announce what you're doing? Because, like, you, they would have announced it, like, a couple months ago at this point, I think. But, like, Tribeca's the next big de- deadline, and I have a couple months, so... Yeah, but I really just want to get it locked, and I want to get into visual effects, I want to get into sound design, I want to get into color, I just want to get into the final stages. But, you know, it's so close, and I and I really love it, and I'm really excited about the movie, and I think it's really good. When it's done, like, when it's picture locked, like, that's when I'm going to start the journey that you're on, where I'm going to, like, start working on what is the, the next thing. And I, and I have a movie I've got, like, 40 pages into that I had written before I made uh, the alternate that was, like, going to be my first feature, but then I realized it was, like, a $20 million movie, and I was like, uh, no way, you know? And so I'm trying to decide, like, if, I can, if I'm going to continue writing that script and finish that, or if I'm going to start a, a over with something else. And I have, like, four ideas, but I just want to, like, start doing the idea, like, the, what is it, like, the ideation process, you know, where it's, like, I just come up with a bunch of different ideas, like, write down all the things that are, are interest me about each project and then sort of decide like which one is the one to, to focus on. Well, I think I said this before, it's been like four years since I've written it. You know, and also it's like I released my movie in January and now it's September and I'm only writing, you know, so it's like it took me a while to separate myself from my last project. But what I found is there's like a freedom with horror where I'm not as nervous to do all the scary things that I couldn't do for my more my more what I thought of was my more personal projects this is a very personal project it's actually based off of a friendship that I had fall apart I'm very excited and not nervous to go to financing because I think there's something very cool about genre where you can go to them and be like yeah I'm making a commercial film and there's an audience for this and we're gonna make some money rather than going to someone and being like please fund my autobiographical love story about my fandom of David Bowie and like, you know what I mean? There's something very cool about starting new projects and also something really less scary about being in the new phase of a project where all those things that are so intimidating aren't intimidating at the moment. They're just like possibilities. So I think we're both in a really cool part of what we're doing it's exciting it is definitely a advantage to be in genre like because it definitely is like infinitely more sellable than um you know my an, an dialogue based romantic drama. dramedies <laughs> right exactly exactly <laughs> i'm so excited i might find money this yeah. time like this is great oh man How, and you already have movies under your belt you've got fancy accolades to help I'm you hoping. you're you're in you're in a good spot. I hope so. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Ah! Yeah. Uh, but guess what? <laughs> what? You've got mail. My breath catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've got mail. Oh, boy. All right. What do we got this week, Liz? This week, uh, we don't actually have mail, but we have two new Patreon supporters. And I think that we really like to celebrate them. And this is a big 
big deal because this is two Patreon supporters in one week, right? Has this happened? It's like a record for us or something. <laughs> like since we launched the pa- the Patreon page, I don't think we've had two in one week. This is like we, <laughs> it's a very big deal. Uh, so we wanted to shout out to Nick Bell and Rohit Gusar. Um, you know Rohit, right? I know Rohit, yeah. Uh, we worked on, uh, I can't exactly remember how it happened, but he was with us uh, as a PA for one day on a interview shoot I did. And I think what happened was we were shooting at a, uh, at a location that he worked at uh, one day, and he was just like really interested and excited and like went, asked a million questions and was like, what are you guys doing? What cameras are you using? Blah, blah, blah. And then uh, our producer, director, was like, hey, you know, we're coming back to this area in a week for another shoot. Do you want to PA f- for us for a day? And he was like, oh, my God, I'll totally come. And he was great. He was awesome. <laughs> I mean, just to call Roe out, he did uh, take some batteries with him when he left <laughs> in, in his pocket. But he was so awesome. He mailed them to us, um, you know, and didn't charge us for anything. And so thank you, Rohit, for turning our batteries. But uh <laughs> <laughs> since then he's gone to college he's like in los angeles um in school so you know it's really in film school so it's really cool that he uh you know is following his journey and you know now he knows the podcast and yeah it's it's really cool so thanks for heat for uh for the support man but you don't know nick um, and so it's so funny i don't think i know nick but i did go to school with a nick bell so in high school um who i haven't talked to since high school so Nick Bell, if you're the same Nick Bell from Albany High, um, 2004, I mean, geez, <laughs> Louise, amazing that you're, that you're like found this podcast and are listening to it. But if you're not that Nick Bell, you're other Nick Bell. That's just as exciting. Thank you, Nick, for the, for the support. And if you, dear listener, want to be like Nick and Rohit and you want to help out our Patreon or send us a question, comment, or suggestion, just email us. Um, or you go to the Patreon page, but I'll start with email. You can email us at podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. And leaving a review for the show is like incredibly beneficial as well on any of the places where you leave reviews for podcasts. But back to that Patreon page, if you really love the show, you want to support us, head to www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast and um, share with us whatever you can afford to spend. Uh, we have enamel pins we have our love and support our lifelong appreciation we are happy to share that with you lastly we have that youtube page so if you head to our instagram page and look at the link in the bio you can click on over to our youtube page you can subscribe and you can check out all the cool videos we already have up there so thank you we also have an announcement we are looking for editors we have wonderful editors for the show uh you know but they're not going to be available going forward so we need new editors again so if anybody wants to be an editor of the podcast Please send us an email to that same email address and uh, we'll try to get you in the system because we're probably going to want multiple editors and not rely on one unless somebody wants to do all the editing. And then uh, you can pitch us that idea, but I just I'm imagine that we're going to be rotating. But anyways, send us an email, podcast at makingmoviesishard.com if you want to become an editor of the show and we'll, and we'll talk. We'll talk some business. I feel bad if it was just one editor because they would just hear me say, beep, beep, boop, boop, like over and over and over again. <laughs> like, like that's a tough life. Yeah, no, that's hard. That's 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 like to- torture yeah. for, for one person. <laughs> but uh, but guess what, Liz? It's uh, it's time. It's time to get shorty. So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie. 
Uh, so this week on the show, we have a short film from a listener, Oscar Sunudo. Sunwedo, I think, right? Doesn't Sunwedo. that end? It's yes. Nue. I think so. I'm, a spa- I'm, I'm like, I spat, practice Spanish every day through Duolingo, and I, I don't know it. So o- Oscar Sunwedo. And uh, this is a really fun uh, short film, Modus Vivendi, I believe. And I don't really want to say anything about it, except it's very different than a lot of the short films that we've had on before, because... It was shot on an iPhone, and it's in another language, which is great. You know, it's Spanish. So, um, yeah, without further ado, here's Oscar to talk about his film. Hi, Liz. Hi, Ulrich. Hi, Making Movies is Hard podcast. Thank you for featuring our short film, Modus Vivendi. Why did we choose to do a short film versus any other medium? Well, film, the passion, is uh, a tried and true story for many filmmakers. I've been doing other stuff throughout my life. I studied marketing and I've done a lot of creative things with that. And I work at that still and it's pretty fun, but it's not film. And I did uh, host and produce an FM heavy metal and hard rock radio show for near nine years. And that was an amazing and creative outlet also. But again, film always in the back of your mind and in your heart. You keep watching movies, you keep wanting to make movies, you keep thinking of ideas and plots and stories and, te- and you learn the technicalities of it slowly but surely. So in the end, the time was right to address that passion. Uh, I started doing some basic exercises on my own. Thank God for uh, iPhones, which was what allowed me to just get that ball rolling. So we started creating short films with action figures from like my Star Wars childhood toys. Uh, those are at starwars.mx and they are very basic exercises on how to get something pretty much basically put together, a basic story, basic editing, and just some music on top of that. And once that phase was completed, it was time to study it and get into it professionally, which is why I took um, professional um, film workshops and I started studying that with Mexican directors uh, which was super helpful in order to understand what professional film was completed as. So I finally wrote a a real story and I finally pre-produced and broke down scenes and then directed and then edited audio, video, music and the marketing and the registering. So it's an A to Z experience that was needed for two things. One, to do it, understand it, get some stuff right and other stuff not as right, at least not as you see it in your mind. And also to get a presentation card to be able to share with someone and say, hey, not only do I like film, not only do I want to make films, but guess what? I just made one, even though it's a basic and simple one. Uh, there's more stuff on the pipeline, but that's the, the gist of why a short film and why now. So why this story? Okay, so basically we were in film school, film, film workshops and classes and collaborating with other friends and people from the class. And the ball was finally getting there to create this short film, a, a real complete short film, either as a team or independently. And then the whole thing for the quarantine and the pandemic hit, we were, we were all sent home, obviously. We were taking care of, uh, of us and each other in the meantime that things were 
making more sense. And it was a dark time being held in home, not being able to understand what's going on. And at the same time as everybody else in the world was getting the news feed daily. Fortunately, we tried to stop that as of recently, but the headlines in Mexico particularly had a very specific way of sharing crime statistics which were going up instead of going down during a quarantine. So that got me thinking, who's doing this killings during this you know, situation? Who doesn't care or who is so into it or so much without any other choice that this still goes on and why isn't it being stopped and whatnot. So in the end, I pretty much condensed everything into one woman who for some reason was one of these hired killers and just made it much more, you know, small and personal. And it's about her coming home and uh, trying to keep death out, in, which is what she deals with day to day that they didn't, it didn't go that well for her for whatever reason. And so she's trying to keep that at a distance, but she finds out that whatever she did out there was haunting her in here for more personal reasons, but it was death following her nonetheless. So I was wondering if the people on these headlines did not think that death was around them, not just because of what they did, but because of the virus and all that stuff. So that's how this story sort of coalesced. It was done again, uh, totally quarantined, totally independent. It was written and it was planned and it was acted very well by my two leading ladies, hopefully, and uh, then edited and then I went through all the process and uh, that's what I wanted to get out there. Like, what is death? Why are we surrounded by it? And what can we do about it? And how do different people understand it? So this is more or less how the story came about. So how did the team come up with the funds? Well, this was a very particular situation, as I just mentioned, due to the pandemic and the quarantine. So it was pretty much a low to zero budget, I guess. So I just used my tripod. I bought uh, a casing for the iPhone and a special microphone. And I used the DJI Osmo for a couple shots. So it was pretty much my existing gear, which is very basic again. And that's as far as the budget went. Other stuff just pretty much were basic props like food and just set decoration. We were again very scarce due to what the story needed. It's supposed to be scarce and you slightly, you know, cold and alienating. So that's why it was a rather cheap production. The idea was to understand how to go about it A to Z. And uh, now that we've done that, we are actually working on our next short film. We're in pre-production on that. And that will definitely involve uh, somewhat more of an investment. And the specific question asking where the funds come from, well, unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on how you look at it, on this very, very specific exercise, it is going to come from my own wallet and my own hard-earned resources. And the next film, which will be something of uh, of a better experience since we already learned how to do something A to Z again, will be a slightly bigger investment requiring some creature design, some CGI effects, some location, clothing, uh, props and whatnot. So fortunately the first one was pretty much uh, super micro budget and the next one 
It's going to be like low budget, self-financed, trying to get it out in the world. It's going to be like a sci-fi action drama of a woman and her baby fighting some nasty little carichas. So we'll take it one step at a time on that end of the budget and see if we can achieve the vision of something low budget, independent, that looks good and entertains folks and has some message in it. Uh, and again, keeping it low budget because it's all coming out of our own pocket for the time being. After that, ideally, we can collaborate, have producers and work on a much more structured scale. But where we are right now, that's pretty much the only option, guys. So what was going to happen to my career? Well, the idea is to have something well-structured, presentable, sort of a, a business card, so to speak, of a thing that says, you know, I know how to, do it, how to do this. I know how the gears work. I know the moving parts. Fortunately, um, in my normal work, I've done a lot of project management. Uh, even though they're creative projects, they require a structure. And that has super duper helped me into creating a structure for a creative project such as film. So that's why I think directing is so readily available in my mind due to having the experience of the square part of numbers and dates and productivity and the you know creative part of ideas and art and collaboration. The idea is to have the, get the ball rolling on, hey guys, we do this over here, who wants to work with us or can I work with you know with other folks and collaborate and keep learning and uh, that's the idea of this of this very first film hopefully and again I still work on marketing I love my work I have great teammates and I work at a great company but the ideal timing would be that sooner or later film would be what pays the bills and then I can call myself a real filmmaker even even though I'm not Michael Bay as of yet or ever will be the idea is to jump chip into the magic of film pretty much 24 7 and then just you know go spielberg and take a hawaii holiday every couple of years so that's pretty much what the idea of getting this ball rolling with film is so now that it's out in the world what purpose does it serve i love that question because the idea is both selfish and humanitarian so to speak so selfish, obviously, because it says, hey, me and my team, or rather my team and I, can make a short film. We are dedicated and professional. I mean, I had two great actresses. I had a com music composer and some other stuff uh, that went up behind the, behind the camera that was very supportive in us as a team in order to achieve a creative idea that goes from nothing to something that is completed. So to all of us, that's some sort of a satisfaction that we can do it, warts and all, and hopefully and definitely it, it improves every time you do the exercise again and again. And the other purpose is to present a question of why do we search for sadness when we can work around that or why can't we embrace sadness once it's in our lives and part of us either temporarily or sometimes if you have a relative that's sick which is something that i've experienced uh you know permanently 
how to deal with it, and then how to look around your environment. Are you part of the good of the good in it, or are you part of a problem? And then what do you do in the outside world impacts your home, your life, your mind, your food, you know, everything. So it's just questions that everybody can relate to in a wholly independent and different way. But it's always, you know, having a good food for thought, even if it's just a no budget, three minute short film from Mexico. That's kind of why we did it and why we are going to keep doing these. And again, every time the intent is to do them better and have them be something of a positive influence on whomever we reach with this uh, audiovisual, beautiful, creative films that we do as a team. So thank you guys. Thank you for watching. Thank you for sharing. And I'm completely open in case you need to ask anything else from us. We can always share all that is needed. Thanks for the podcast. Thanks for getting the word out to everybody with this uh, type of productions and for being an inspiration for us who are just getting started on the happy, hard and long way. As you guys say, making movies is hard, but it's life, isn't it? So Liz, what did you think about this film? You know, it, it did win me over in the sense of I'm going to be super blunt, like I wish it wasn't shot on an iPhone because you could tell that the text's a little low. I wish the lighting was a little bit more nuanced and varied. There are certain things that I, you know, started to judge it for, which I know is very cold and mean of me. Boo, Boo Liz. <laughs> but when you watch it, you're like, oh, this director knows what he wants. And it's very clean. The edit is clean. The way things are composed is very cleanly done. And it's very punchy and clear. And the co you get the concept from start to finish. It's like very good storytelling. So what I was just thinking, though, is I think a lot of people, if they're programming a, programming a film festival, they might dis disregard this film right off the bat and i think that's really unfortunate i don't think they would give this film the the credit it deserves this is me presuming a lot about the equal judginess of programmers but i see a lot of potential in this artist and i thought i thought this was decent it was a well-told story my opinion is like i've seen movies that look like this at film festivals that don't have the good story that this film yeah. has you know yeah. which i think is like you know it just kind of depends. Like, you know, I think it depends on the level of film festival you're going to, and it depends on if the film festival has a lot of slots or not, you know, that a movie like, you know, with this kind of quality will get in or not. And I'm not saying it's low quality. It's just obviously, you know, they, they had a few tools and they made the most out of the tools they had, you know. But what I really appreciated about this this film was the storytelling. I thought the storytelling was really well done. Um, I love the way that they uh, revealed information to you, you know, like they don't give it to you all at once. Like you kind of get it in pieces, which is cool. I thought the performance is really great, especially the mom in the hospital. I thought she was really fun. And... Uh, yeah, you know, I just, I just kind of, I just like the movie, and I, I watched it without subtitles the first time because I didn't realize how to turn on subtitles in Vimeo for some reason because I'm just r ridiculous, and then I watched it again with subtitles, and I think it was both good both ways, but I definitely liked it more when I could understand <laughs> all the words. But, but, but that's one of the things about this film is there aren't that many. There's not that much dialogue. It's it's a lot it's of visual storytelling, story absolutely. Which is which is what I I really appreciate. So yeah, I'm really ex excited to hear what people think of this short. Like you know, 
do you guys think like these are the kinds of shorts that we should be including in this? Like, should we be going all? I mean, like last week we had Slice of Life, right? Which is like this eighty thousand dollars, yeah, like you know, big budget short film, all the bells and whistles, like everything you could imagine. Spent years and years and years on it. This was probably like you know whatever. Who knows how long they they made this? They took to make this movie, but considerably less time, considerably like less money, all, no money, presumably. You know, just like you know, whatever, a few hundred bucks maybe, um, or less, but, uh, but yeah, let us know. I mean, I'm curious to hear what people think of, of this, you know, like what this, what do they want out of this segment? But I like showing everything, you know, from, you know, whatever big budget short films to, to like just the small ones. I'd rather talk about only films like this. Genuinely. I would, because I think while slice of life and kinetic are like, I sat through them and really enjoyed myself and thought, wow, these are fantastic storytellers. I was thinking, like it was a foregone conclusion this film is going to go somewhere whereas if we watch something like modus vivendi i don't know the future of this film i can just look at it and say oh this is a storyteller we should pay attention to and that's really cool i'm treading into dangerous territory because i know that like programming is all about discovery and i hate that i don't think that we're discovering oscar i think oscar is a you know an artist within his own power but there's something about shining a light on something that may not have a really bright light shine on it right now yeah well it's hard to say like so i I just was curious like i went to kinetic it's you know it's on Vimeo. Kylie has, you know, not allowed people to see how many views it has, which is like a new thing that's in vogue right now. Yeah. People to, lim- to to not show the views. I think showing views is like, okay, for better or for worse, here's how many views we have. <laughs> it's right? honest, you know, yeah. Like, whatever. Just here it is. So I'm not sure how many views Kinetic has or like what the attention has been, but my guess is it might, maybe it doesn't have a ton. Maybe it doesn't have 50,000 views, 60,000 views the way that Slice of Life does. You know, maybe it only has a few thousand. And I mean, so I'm just saying, like, despite the polish of a movie and despite how good it is, looks and, and everything, they can still knock it attention. You know, yeah. they can still just That's sit so there. Valid. So That's valid. I mean, you, you, it's kind of incredible to see, like, the quality of short films that are out there that only have a few hundred kids on them. You know, it's just like... It's also like, is the so, filmmaker know how to market? Like, I know that... <laughs> like all of my shorts have no no views on them like really? yeah wow. i think i did a music video that may have like 20 to forty thousand, but that was 10 years ago and the artist wow. is like legitimately known artist but point okay. being like yeah there's it's like a whole art to getting attention on your short film that i never learned i know you know this art but like Right. I don't know it at all. But you could do the art the way you're supposed to and still not get any views. Like Timothy and I did that for Over My Dead Body. Like we like we have a whole episode about it, like episode twenty five, where we like, you know, each sent out a hundred emails to like news outlets and to blogs and, you know, did all that stuff and we only ended up with a few thousand hits on the film, you know. And we got like ten write ups. So it's just like you know just happens it's just it's just tough you know it's really hard to get those views i I feel lucky like my first short film you know strange thing like you know within the first week we had twenty six thousand. Oh my god and i was like at the time i was like oh i should it's not even 100 it's not even 50 like uh this is pathetic but like now after making like five more short films since then i was like it's like i've never had that success again you know but the problem is i have i like look at people like the colin levy's of the world who like his all his shorts have over a hundred thousand hits. He has shorts with millions of hits, you know. And it's like, 
it's hard not to compare yourself to those kinds of people. But then, you know, Colin just got his uh, short film Skywatch bought by uh, Universal, I think. No, NBC. Well, they are NBC Universal. So it's going to be a Peacock show now. So he got a deal um, turning that short film into a, you know, a series. So I guess it's what I'm trying to say is like comparing yourself to people like that. It's like maybe that's not a good idea. It's dangerous. <laughs> Compare and despair yeah. at all at all moments. Compare and despair. But yeah, but this has been great. But I think it's time that we get to our conversation with Darren. Welcome, Darren, to the show. Thanks so much for coming today. We're going to start with our five rapid-fire questions. First one is, how many days did you shoot Death of Me? I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. I don't remember. It was two years ago. And uh, I'm going to make a number up. I think it was 21 or 22. It was not a lot. It was a very quick shoot. Yeah, I want to say it was like around 21 or 22 days. But I want you to keep in mind that that actually means like 16 days because we shot it in Thailand with no translators, which was my favorite part of the whole thing, which was uh, half the time was me pantomime acting what I wanted done. And then them kind of looking at each other like this guy's a fucking idiot and then trying to interpret what I was signaling to them to do it. It was pretty awesome. Uh, what can you say was your budget? I honestly don't know. I'll tell you that it was the first movie. I stopped, I didn't make movies for a few years. I got involved in immersive theater. So coming back to this, I had a break in my immersive theater schedule. And I wanted to go to Thailand. And I thought it would have been a cool thing. So I know the but it was not a big movie at all. It was like, a, I want to say it was like a two and a half week prep and a 20 day shoot. But it was a very, very low budget. And again, when you ask the number, I honestly don't know, because also we're dealing with Thailand. We're not dealing with America. So I don't understand the conversion ratio of what that actually means. I'll definitely say it was in like the two and under range, I'm guessing, but I'm not sure. And then how long did you work on the film from inception to it being released? This is a crazy story. And it's, um, I'm going to give you a lot more information you probably want to know. But so the original idea was I was going to go to Thailand, uh, scout locations, fly back to America, and then go um, go back to Thailand. That didn't happen. When I went to Thailand, I stayed there for this time. But my, my point of telling you the story was that I had an infected root canal with the two days before I was supposed to go out there. And the dentist was like, hey, we got to pull this tooth. And I was like, I, I'm supposed to leave to go do this, this scout on this movie. And he goes, I'm going to give you some antibiotics. And when you come back, before you start shooting, we need to get this thing pulled. So I didn't ever come back to to Los Angeles. And uh, I had a massive infection that started about one week into filming. And by the very end of production, I had been on antibiotics for two straight months and was running a huge fever and I ended up losing 18 pounds due to me just being completely fucked up and hallucinatory sick. So there's a big fog that hangs over me on on specifics because I honestly, with the first time in my career, I thought I was going to die. Like I honestly thought, this is it. I'm going to die here. Everything was quick. I'll tell you that. Um, from the day that I went out there to when I finished the movie was about two months. I think we had a two-week prep and like I said, about 20 days shooting. The process of developing it was very quick as well. We had a short window to do it in. I was available for these like three months. Maggie was available for these three months. So it happened very quickly. What didn't happen quickly was it coming out. I filmed this movie uh, two weeks after my daughter was born, which was also insane. So I, I had my daughter, and then I was in Thailand two, like two weeks later. 
so and my daughter's two and a half now so it was like you know two and a half years ago we filmed this for two years ago so it's it was crazy so the time for it to come out was a lot longer uh than than any of us wanted oh my god sorry i have a one and a half year old so i'm just like trying to like fathom two weeks after like that intrusion <laughs> oh my, god. my wife was so pissed she was so pissed. <laughs> it's not great i mean one of the things is as a filmmaker i might only work once a year twice you know maybe twice a year but like once a year i'll do a movie so um i had to go and do it because again my i have to provide insurance and mortgage and all this other stuff so there was part of her that was like get the hell out and then the other part of her was like how the hell can you leave me we just had a new baby and this is not that, you know, my kids have always come with me when I do films. Like I shot something. So you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. And my son was out there. He flew out there and got to hang out. But you cannot put a newborn baby on a flight to Thailand, which from door to door from where we were filming was about 30 hours. Um, we were filming in a place called Krabi, which once you go into Thailand, you have to take another flight to Krabi. And so, you know, it was a 30-hour travel day. So there's no way I could ask Laura, my wife, or my newborn to sit on a flight for 30 hours. So, yeah, it was, it was rough. I know that there's a fog over the, the data, but we have two more questions <laughs> about the project. How big was your crew, if you can remember? Okay, I'll tell you. First off, the crew in Thailand was great. It was, but it was, you know, it was a, it was a more compact crew specifically because we... Half the movie was shot in Bangkok. The other shot, the other half was shot in Krabi. You know that means putting everyone up. You had, everyone had to be in a hotel. You had to get the equipment out to Krabi. So that was a smaller crew than when we were in Bangkok, for sure. I don't remember, but I want to say I mean it was it was smaller than than crews that I'm used to working with. But we had everything that we needed. There was nothing that we we're like, where is? No, we don't have that crew member here. Um, but there, there was some significant differences, absolutely, in the way the crew was working and structuring. Like, example, the art department. Like on Spiral, maybe I just finished, there might be 25 people in the art department. In something like Death of Me and in just how it works in Thailand, there might be three people in the entire art department. Um, so there, there definitely was differences, but they did a good job managing it and making sure that we had what we needed. And then out of all your projects, how difficult was this one? The most. It was very, you know, it was because, and again, I, I attribute that to a lot of factors. The language barrier, absolutely number one. Two, the heat of shooting in Thailand. We were shooting at the hottest month of the summer. Um, we were also shooting uh, at which when it rains the most. But what, what to me was the most difficult was dealing with the elements like the mosquitoes, for example. So I'm a, I'm a complete baby when it comes to certain things. And body temperature regulation is one of them. An example is it's, it's 100 degrees and you're going to go film a scene where there's no shade. Normally, you would want to wear shorts and a short sleeve shirt. You can't do that because of mosquitoes. So you're supposed to wear a long sleeve shirt and long sleeve pants, boots, all that. So you're dressed like it's winter with 100 degrees out there and with a massive tooth infection and trying to have the ability to explain stuff and shit being lost in translation. It was very, very difficult for me from a, from a production standpoint. Um, also, when you don't have the time and resources like you would on a big budget film, every second counts. 
So um, that it was, I'll tell you, it was not a comfortable shoot in any, in any respect. It was very trying in that. And it was beautiful. I mean, if you look at the locations in the, in the movie, we were in paradise. It was paradise, but it was also hot as hell and very rough to, to work at the speed that we had to work at. So yeah, it was, it was extremely tiresome in that, in that respect. You said that it took a long time for the film to come out. Can you, and I know that we should be going back to the beginning and asking you about the origin of the project, but can you talk a little bit about why it took so long? Well, honestly, I'll tell you, and I don't know this, so I'm, I'm just theorizing on this. So this is, this is just me theorizing. I, I will, a couple of things. First off, um, you have to find, we, we went in this movie without having a distributor. We, it was so, it was financed independently. So then you have to start the process of showing it to distributors to try to find someone to buy it. We don't, we didn't want to show it until the movie was done. So you have to wait through all the posts for the movie to be done. So that took, you know, 12, 14 weeks after filming for that. Then you have to coordinate doing it on the same two weeks that all the distributors are available. So that takes time. Then around the time that that happened, I land Spiral. And so I think there was a, there was a thought of let's hold this movie until after Spiral comes out and capitalize on you know, from the director of Spiral. Spiral is going to be a huge release, you know, and this was not going to be that. So I think that with any film, you want to capitalize on previous things. So I think that there was a mindset, if I were guessing, to capitalize on Spiral. But then when Spiral got pushed due to COVID, they couldn't wait that long. You can't wait that long in a movie like this to recoup the investment. So then I think they made the determination to put it out as it was. But I think the original idea was for this movie to come out after Spiral. Um, even though it was shot before Spiral. But sometimes things like this happened. Um, you know, when I made the movie Mother's Day, which is one of my favorite of my movies, I think that took about two years to come out as well, due to uh, numerous issues, legal issues, outside of any of the filmmaker's control. And I think that that's an unfortunate thing that sometimes happens. And it sucks because, you know, you're so excited when you film something, and then two years later, you're like, wait, what was that movie? What, how, how many crew were in it? What, what was it? And I, I, you forget. I mean, again, I'm not even joking you about, I don't remember what I had for dinner last night. It's crazy and it sucks, but it's one of the realities of making movies that sometimes things don't move the way you want them to. I saw the film. Congratulations, by the way. You know, you're talking about like being in a state of like pain and like this hallucinogenic thing. And it's very much like kind of what the movie is like in a lot of parts of it. Do you, did that play into helping you get into that zone at all? Or was it just like you were just surviving to try to make this movie however you could? No, I think, I mean, they're both. There's a survival, there's a survival element of it. Um, but you're having to constantly adapt. You know, you walk into any movie with these ideas and thoughts of what it's going to be. Um, and then you're hit with the reality of what it actually is. And I'll give you just an example going back to another movie of mine. The, you can't see the poster. The Barons, which is this movie I made on the Jersey Devil. We had this great idea. I love the Jersey Devil mythology. I wanted to make a movie on the Jersey Devil. And we constructed this huge devil-like creature. And it was supposed to be a contortionist in the Jersey Devil, running, jumping, leaping from trees, doing all this shit. Well, the Jersey Devil arrived uh, one the, the day that it was needed on set. Like we were shooting the Jersey Devil at 6 p.m. It arrived on set that morning because it was still being constructed. Uh, when it arrived on set, it weighed over 100 pounds, and there was no way that anyone can move at all in the, in the suit at all. So for the rest of the movie, we had to figure out how to make the Jersey Devil look like it was moving when it could not move. So they, if you notice, if you ever watch that movie, it never really moves. It just kind of stands there. And uh, we had to like put it in wheelbarrows and like pretend that it was moving. 
we had some of those issues on this film where like we had these three witches that were supposed to be really these menacing presences that were moving around and doing this crazy shit. And then they got there and they couldn't move in the masks because the masks are these. Hold on. In real time, we're going to get to see what this mask looks like because we were on video. This well, is amazing. It's, it's, it's like, this, is, this is a prototype one. But so these masks are skin fitting. They're heavy. Like, I don't know if you, they're, they're heavy. So when you put them on your mask, it immediately molds to your face. It's not, it's not a latex, it's silicon. So it, it immediately molds to your face, and, 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 but you become claustrophobic so quickly, so, so rapidly, that the women who are hired to do this, and let's not forget, it's 100 and some degrees in Thailand, in muggy and sweaty, and they're wearing this mask that it, it, is, it goes directly to your face. So they're sweating, and there's nowhere for the sweat to go. They can't get the sweat out. So every maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds, they had to stop and pull the mask off. And it takes five or six minutes to reset. Well, then five or six minutes, 30 seconds later, they had to take it off again. So the, you know, the ideas of some of these things you have going in about these, these witches that would move backwards and do this crazy shit, you're left with, no, they can stand there. That's what they can And when you're in Thailand, it's not like you're in Los Angeles. You can't quickly say, okay, let's have prosthetics made and we'll do this a different way. You, you kind of are in the jungle and you're like, we got to make this work. So there was a lot of figuring that out on the, on the day, which is exciting. I mean, listen, that's what I love about filmmaking is trying to figure out these problems. But, uh, you know, that was, that was some of the challenges we had doing this film. Well, can you talk a little bit about being attached to the project in the, in the first place and how you kind of leveraged all your uh, numerous films to land the gig and then eventually to land um, Spiral? One of my favorite things about my career is just how fucking weird it is, if you actually look at it, that I go from doing three Saw films that were wildly successful to going to make a rock opera with Paris Hilton and Sarah Brightman, to then doing this crime drama, to going to Japan and shooting the Japanese TV series, it's all in Japan, to doing immersive theater for the last four years, to come back to do a small, you know, you know, movie to doing Spiral with Chris Rock and Sam Jackson. It's, it's a crazy trajectory of just weird stuff. And I, you know, I've been very lucky that I've been able to do what I want to do. And I think that um, the Saw films have given me the ability to, to kind of do what I want a little bit. Now, maybe if I was a smarter business person, I would just keep making those type of movies because then I'd live in a mansion somewhere and have whatever. But I kind of go on these weird sabbaticals where I just go do weird shit and make no money for a couple of years. And I love it. So like, I think doing movies like this, because I was the Saw director and they can use that in the promotions, it's easier for me to get these type of movies made. And I think there's, there's that. I'm also good at guerrilla style filmmaking. So when they said, Hey, we have 20 days or 21 days, we're going to Thailand. Can you make a movie? Uh, You have two weeks to prep it. I'm like, yeah, let's go do it. And so I, I, I think that I've been lucky in that response, in that respect. So you, you talked earlier about like, you know, you went to this to Thailand to make this movie. That was sort of like part of like the whole the whole thing. But what else about Death of Me drew you to the project? Like, why did you want to go out and make this movie in the first place? I like shooting. I do. I like I like making movies. Um, I really like of which which in essence is a horror version of Hangover is this couple wakes up with no memory of what happened in the night before. 
and then they realized that the night before he killed her and this video that you can uh, you can obviously look at and then them trying to piece together what happened to her and i think that for me that was a really cool hook into a film you know one of my other things that always has fascinated me if you go back to any of my films from 11 11 to the devil's carnival uh to abattoir is people's um belief what they believe in as as characters that religion has always fascinated me but belief has fascinated me more and it's easy to throw stones and call people ridiculous ah, i can't believe someone would, would believe that i can't believe an island could believe that sacrificing would save them from a tremendous storm yet those same people pray to a god and think that if they ask for a favor that he will do it or grant it because they believe and they have faith and so when you when you really dive into faith and belief it's such a fascinating subject who are we to throw stones any religion because you're, you're, you're basically basing your belief system on a supernatural element. It's called faith. And so I love exploring movies that deal with faith. And even as, as, as far out as that faith may be, people believe insane things. I believe insane things. Um, and I think that those are the movies that always I'm drawn to. And this movie definitely had that at the core about what this island believes in. Alric and I are in the, Alric, if I can say, we're in like the emerging stages of our career. You know, we're establishing ourselves and we are building projects from like the sub ground up, right? Um, But we're talking with a lot of filmmakers these days who have projects brought to them. So can you talk a little bit about what was set before you came on board? You know, being a filmmaker of your stature, do you get to like, when do you want to jump in and when did this project bring you on, if that makes sense? Yeah, the movie was much different before I came in. Um, it was a much different script. Uh, it was set in Haiti. It was very much dealing with voodoo. The first thing we tried to do was we did a pass on the movie to make it more within what we could film and in budget. And then when we looked at trying to film it based on what the script was, which was, which was based in this voodoo-like religion, Um, There was tropical storms everywhere, and we weren't able to go to some of the places that would have allowed us to use the infrastructure and the location and the geography. So one of the first challenges was we knew that we had to move it, and it was two options. We We had Hawaii or we had Thailand. Hawaii ended up being too expensive for us to film in, so it went to Thailand. So when you look at something like Thailand, you're like, we have to rewrite this. This won't work. You can't do a voodoo story set in, in Thailand. It wouldn't have worked the same way. So thus began the creative process of trying to change the story. So when I was brought in, there was a script. Um, it was a script that was a different story. Had the same hook, had the same idea of these people that were um, trying to protect or save their island. But we had to start the process of altering and changing it. You know, it's, it's different than some projects that I've done where I'm involved from the inception standpoint. Uh, Repo, The Devil's Carnival, Saw 2, Saw 3, Saw 4, Mother's Day. 11-11, these are all movies that I was at before there was a script. This is one of the few movies that I was not, that, that was, in fact, this is the only movie that I've been in that, that a script came to me. I just thought about that. This is actually the only one. Um, every other movie, St. Agatha, Abattoir, these are all movies that I developed. You know, it is, a, it is a challenge on something like this because it's, you know, these other movies, Saw 2, for example, was something that I wrote from page one originally. And so there is a connection to that material, um, which makes every word precious to me and makes everything. In a movie like this, there wasn't that type of connection. So I think that we, as a cast and crew, were able to adapt and change things very rapidly. You know, you'd sit with Maggie or you'd sit with Luke and you would discover new things. And it was more easy to adapt 
to those things because you were coming kind of all at it from the same place as opposed to Mother's Day, which I worked on for years. When someone comes to you with an idea, you're like, no, it can't be that because this, this, or this. I don't think that existed on this type of movie because we were all kind of coming at it from the same place. And did uh, was it already cast before you came on board or were you a part of that creative? Yeah, I was definitely a part of it. You know, I was a huge fan of Alec SS, who if you guys haven't seen Starry Eyes, she's fantastic in. Um, she was great in the uh, Doctor Sleep as well, but I, I was a huge fan of her. Luke Kimsworth, uh, I met him once and I just bonded with the guy. He's, there's certain people you just bond with immediately. So he was an easy, uh, an easy, like, I have to get this guy. Maggie, I had been a fan of some of her movies in the past. Uh, I was looking for a female that would not play it as a victim. I wanted to play her as the strong, non-bullshit. She's not going to sit back and she's going to try to take initiative on things. And Maggie just kind of personifies that when you meet her. So there was that. The casting in Thailand was fun because a lot of the people you see on screen are just people we found on the street that we would be filming for the day. And I'd be like, oh my God, I love that person's look. Can we, can we get that person? And we'd go and we'd, we'd, we'd talk to them and communicate with them and, and get them to agree to come be in the movie for a day. So that was exciting because you're not dealing with the traditional extras casting or background acting. You're actually casting the people that live right there. Can you talk about the deaths in the movie? Like, were those all written into the script or did you have like a, a part in like designing those and bring those together? There's, I mean, there's a, there's a few deaths. The, the most graphic one, which was the one of the, the one that takes place on the dock. Uh, yeah right <laughs> yeah that that was one that i that we tried to come up with ourselves um we wanted something that was just there was a script i read a long time ago called threshold uh written by stephen susco who I, I i just loved this moment in the script that he wrote that i was i was attached to it for years we never able to do it where an old woman was raking her yard and uh she looks over to her next door neighbor and she's drinking her lemonade and she waves at him and then she runs and just dives into a wood chipper and she like just killed herself into it and i love just how unexpected it was and she was doing it to herself and it was just this awesome moment so i wanted to do originally the idea was this character turned on a boat looked to his person waved and then dived into the propellers of the boat but it became too much of a logistical nightmare on the time that we had to do that so we try to construct other ways to create that same thing, that same kind of idea. You know, one of the problems, one of the issues that I wasn't expecting about going there was, again, the heat and how the heat interacted with all the prosthetics. So we had a lot of other things that we had planned, but they would sweat them off. You know, there was, there was numerous gags that we had that they would spend an hour and a half in the trailer putting them on. And then you come out and the prosthetic just, just slips off because of the sweat. So that was, that was uh, again, something I've never experienced before. Was not so, so just talking about it, and I mean, spoiler, spoiler, he, he guts himself is the, the move. Um, did you have a prosthetic piece that the actor was wearing that to do that? Or like, how did you guys actually achieve that, that, that effect? Because that was pretty insane. Yeah, he, um, that was shipped in from America. We did, um, the masks were from America, and that, that gag was... Um, but yeah, he was wearing a bodysuit basically that went around or a, a stomach suit that went around his midsection, packed full of all of that. And then uh, he could actually stab into it and, and pull his stuff out. And because I believe he had his shirt on, it was hiding the seam, he really couldn't see it. Working in Thailand, they have a censorship board or a government organization that sits in on every day of filming. And they sit back and they have a huge book, like this big book 
to make sure you're not violating any of the rules or regulations. And so every day we would just see this person sitting back there making sure we weren't violating. We got, we got one time that we got kind of, um, we had to rethink something. And it was more about how we portrayed temples and religious things than it was we can't do violence or whatever. But it was, uh, that was something else that was kind of nerve inducing is sitting there and there was a scene early on where Maggie and, and uh, Luke are having sex in front of a temple. And that was like an example. We had to reframe the shot because we weren't allowed to show the temple any sort of angle because you can't do anything pornographic near an object like that. So there were, the first time that I had to deal with something like that, which is like a, a, a minute by minute censorship board on set with you. That's crazy. I have like 40 more questions, but I think it's time for us to get to our like long view questions, which are more like career, you know, really introspective moments for all of us. What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it right now? The first film. So the first thing I did of any sort of size was something called Butterfly Dreams, which um, starred one of my favorite actors who's been in everything I've done, except like Tyler movie. A guy named Jay LaRose. Um, Jay LaRose was in Saw 3. He's the guy in the chains that rips the chains out of his body. Um, it was a short film, but but not, it was an expensive short. I did two short films starring Jay LaRose, and I think both of them we spent sixty dollars to $100,000 on. And it was right out of film school. We, we did the friends and family thing. We got friends and family to each send us $10, but the entire crew did it, so we ended up with some money. I don't think I've ever shown those ever, ever publicly. Identity Lost was a really cool idea. And I, if I knew where the short film was, I'd put it on my website because it, it's you, you can start seeing my style go through it. That's cool. I mean, obviously, Saw 2 is the first one of any size. And I am I just rewatched Saw 2 for the first time in years, years and years. I mean, I really dig it. I mean, that was, that was an experience like no other. I'm 25 years old. I've never directed really anything. And I'm, I'm doing Saw 2. So that was... Uh, just the experience of making that was, was an insane. And that was film school. It was a rapid film school for me. Even though I went to film school, you don't really realize what it is until you are standing on set. And specifically a set like that, of that size. Yeah, I, you know, I don't really watch movies after I make them because I, I just get so frustrated with myself. Or I'm like, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do this? So I don't really watch movies after I do them. But I did rewatch Saw 2 and I was like, oh yeah, pretty cool. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? There's, there's two things that I'll say. The first one is, is that, and I guess this is actually one longer piece of advice. So I went to film school with like 40 kids in my class. I was nowhere near the, the most talented or the best of who I went to film school with. In fact, I was probably towards the bottom. The classmates of mine were more talented than I were. They were better, more creative, but they were not more motivated than me. And so while they all talked about coming to Los Angeles and talked about writing a screenplay, I didn't talk about it. I just did it. I wrote a screenplay and I moved to Los Angeles. While they talked about getting, getting you know, the money to make their first film, I just did it. And so I think that there, there are two types of people in this industry, those who talk about doing things and those who do things. Those who do things will succeed much more than those who talk about doing things. So I just started doing. But the advice that I would give people and... It's, it's a weird one is that I am a failure. I am a 100% failure in my career. Now I'm a 99.9% failure in my career. For every movie that I have hanging on my wall, there's nine movies that you don't see that I was fired from or never got made. 
For every one screenplay that I've sold, there's 99 screenplays that I'm passed on. The difference between me and the people I went to film school with is I kept getting kicked again and again and again, and I got up every single time and did it again. They would get discouraged after being kicked 15 or 16 times, and they would say, screw this, I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to be a real estate person, I'm going to be whatever. I kept getting kicked, and on the 99th time I was kicked, it became Saw 2. And so I think that you got to be willing to be kicked in the face, embarrassed, humiliated, told you're no good, laughed at, and then you're going to get a hit. And then it might be another 99 kicks in the face before you get Saw 3. And so I'm not talented. I'm just resilient and I'm like a cockroach and I'm not going anywhere. And so while my friends gave up, I just kept doing it and I'm still able to do it 16 years later. I love that. I'm like, I'm, I'm juiced from that experience. Thank you. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker, whether it's number of films or awards or prestige or such something you're shooting for? You no, know, it changes every day. And I'll tell you, my life has changed a lot since having kids. Before kids, I was just going to make the most fucked up, gnarly, crazy shit. Now I'm like that kind of, I'm not into it anymore. Like I'll make horror films, but it doesn't excite me like it used to. I want to make something that they can watch and that when I watch TV with my son or daughter, I see it in their face. I see them excited. I see them enthralled and entertained. I want to see my kids have that with something I've done. I mean, I can't show my kids anything I've made. I mean, I show them part of Tales of Halloween and that's about all they can see. They, I can't really show them anything. So I, I definitely want to make a Goonies-esque movie, something that is, you know, on the darker side of PG-13 but still something that they can enjoy and it's fun and it's, it's got a message in it. I will say that where I find myself lucky in my career is that every passion I've set out to do, I've done. So, you know, I wanted to make a rock opera. Who makes a fucking rock opera? That's all I wanted to do when I came to LA. That was before I made Saw 2. And I made three rock operas now. And not only have I made three rock operas, I've made three rock operas with my idols and heroes of Broadway. Um, you know, from, from Adam Pascal of Rent to Ted Neely of Jesus Christ Superstar to Sarah Brightman of Phantom of the Opera. Everyone that I've wanted to work with like that, I've been able to work with. I'll tell you, though, that the proudest accomplishment that I've done is this immersive theater stuff that I do. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the David Fincher film, The Game, um, but I, I do the game for real. And it's 100% it's, it's like the game where people sign up they have to go through a laborious um, process of waivers and legalities. And then we fuck with their lives and we do it in such a hardcore intrusive way um, that they find themselves embroiled in the middle of their own mini conspiracy that lasts nine months. And they don't know when it begins, when it ends, who's involved, who's not involved. We employ hundreds of actors, stuntmen, off-duty police officers, and we create these insane experiences for people. And I'm doing that now. This is the fifth year doing it. And I think to me, that's one of the most rewarding things. And I'll tell you why and how it relates back to movie making. I'm doing the same thing. I'm telling a story. I'm telling a narrative story. But instead of it being a passive experience where you are watching a bunch of flickering images on the screen, you are in the center of it and you are part of it. Your actions change it. And I think that to me, I want my art to be interactive and I want the audience to feel like they're a part of it as opposed to just watching it. And I think that that to me, so imagine instead of watching James Bond, you are James Bond. And how do you do that to an audience member? How do you make an audience member feel like they are part of the story? 
And so this, this thing that we've started called the tension experience started that kind of thing where we have put the audience in the middle of the story. And it's, it's just been, it's addictive. And that's what I've been doing for the last four or five years. Can we do a whole podcast on that? Like, right. I just want to hear about that. You know what that. you guys should both do? I started a new one for Halloween season that's online. Um, it's called onedaydie.com. If you guys go to onedaydie.com and sign up for it, it's a, I partnered with these two magicians, um, as well as another creator of mine, a screenwriter named Joshua Dietz. And um, it, it gives you a chance to kind of get your, dip your toes into this world that we, that we play in, this immersive world, that, that your choices will dictate what happens to you. And it's an experience that takes place completely online and in your home, but it's completely immersive and completely interactive. And it, it's for this October. So onedaydie.com, and you can kind of see what I'm talking about. But the alternate programs are not online. The other things that you do are All real world. And I mean, we do crazy stuff. And we've, we've been very lucky that we are contracted out now to celebrities where they have us do the birthday parties. And we literally do like a Michael Douglas thing where it starts 36 hours before their birthday and they're picked up in limousines and they're, they're taken to these places. They have to interact in like really seedy locations to get clues to take them to the next place. And no one knows who's a part of it. So it's, it's, it's fun. I just can't even imagine the amount of work that takes to do that. And to work. It's like gotta be like a full-time job you do all the time. Right. And I was going to say it is a full-time job and, it is much more intricate and complex than a lot of the films that I've done because you're dealing with the safety of everyone, the safety of the actors, the safety of the people, the legality of, of not being sued, and the real-time writing. And this is the thing which is so exciting. The tension experience, which is the first one we did, the script for the show was over was over 780 pages on the first show and that meant that, that every character had multiple things that they could or couldn't do based on your reaction to them. then we did another show just last year called theater macabre and that was in la and that was one you you would when you walked into the experience there were 33 different stories taking place at the exact same time and how you interacted would push you on a track of one of 33 stories so if you went with 10 of your friends, you would all walk away with a completely different story that lasted two hours. So those are awesome from a technical standpoint of figuring out the choreography of having all these storylines taking place at the exact same time, basically in the same environment, but never crossing each other. When you go do Spiral, right? Like, what do you do? Are you also running one of these experiences at the same time? Or do you like take a break and like just go do Spiral no, for like two funny. months or something? Mark, Mark Bird, who is the producer of the Saw Universe, calls me and goes, I'm, I'm not going to do my bad Mark Bird impression because you hear it and I'll never work again. But I have a great Mark Bird impression over here. He calls me and says, that he wants me to come back and do Spiral, but if he catches me working on one of my live immersive shows, he's going to kick my ass and fire me. So I <laughs> okay. because, you know, and rightfully so, that, that they're rebooting Saw. It's a, it's a reboot. And he doesn't want me distracted. And rightfully so, because doing these immersive things is a full-time job. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week thing. And here I am doing a Saw movie with Chris Rock and Sam Jackson. So he did not want my attention split. So when I was doing Spiral, there was there was none of that shit. It was just Spiral. You're talking about this movie that you made in in Thailand, right? That this that this whole episode's about. That's like whatever under two million. Who knows what the budget is? But you go to do something like Spiral. It's like a forty million dollar budget, is what I saw on IMDb or whatever. Like, what's the difference? Like, like do you just have months and months of prep time? Is your process completely different when you go do a movie like that? Like, well, first off. I'm going to dispel a rumor. It was not $40 million. I don't even think it was. But 
It was definitely more than uh, the Thailand movie for sure. Well, on, on a movie like Spiral, and dare I say it's not a fun, it's, it's not fun um, because there's so much pressure to not drop the ball or fuck up. When I do a movie like Death of Me, the reality is there's no bar. There's no, no one is, there's no fan base. It's just like, maybe people like it, maybe they see it. But something like Spiral, you're going into people that have spiral tattoos over their entire body that that post on Saw message boards day in and day out. And worse for me, I'm coming off doing three number one hit Saw movies. So for me to come back in, I have a lot going against me. I can't, it's like going to Vegas. I've, I've hit a blackjack three times in a row. I should walk away from the table, but I'm doubling down again. And I'm like, so the last thing that I want to do is do a less enthralling, less good Saw movie than I did 2008 whenever I finished it. So I'm already competing with myself, which sucks. Then I'm looking at Chris Rock and Sam Jackson. Here are two megastars that have agreed to trust me to do a horror film. So now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of, I'm, first off, who's not a fan of Chris Rock or Sam Jackson? But, you know, he's one of my favorite comedians. And now I'm directing this guy and I'm like, I can't fuck this up. Like this, this I'm going to look like the world's biggest tool if Spiral is not a hit. So there was, there was this extreme pressure that I had on myself the entire time to make it the best Saw movie that had been yet. And then there's pressure from the studio as well because it, it is a big Saw movie and it, it's a bigger budget than other Saw movies. So there's a, you know, there's, there is a worry that if we reboot this and it doesn't work, that could, that could put a nail in the coffin of Saw. So I think that there was a lot of pressure on me that made it, it, it there was a lot of sleepless nights if you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give yourself? I think, I think the biggest one is don't do movies just because I want to do them. Like, wait for the right ones. Like, I've made a lot of movies because I could. Like, 11-11-11 was a movie because the producer had a date. He was like, I have a date, 11-11-11. I own the date. Let's go make a movie for it. And I was like, awesome, let's do it. And it's a pile of hot garbage. You know, I, I did it because I wanted to go make a movie. I just, I like shooting. And so I said yes, and I went and did it. And that probably hurt my career. You know, so I think that doing things, I wish that I would, I would think before I said yes to stuff and really think about what will this do, not for me today, but what will it do for me five years from now? And a movie like 11.11 did nothing for me five years from now, except hurt me. And so I think that that is something that I would have told the younger me, just wait. Like, I know I want to make movies, and it's awesome that people let me make movies, but they need to be the right movies. I would say that. Um, the other thing is this, is trust myself, because some of my favorite films that I've done, I said, fuck you, and just did what I wanted to do, and they're my favorite movies, versus being watered down and conceding to ideas that I don't agree with. So I wanted to make Repo the genetic opera. A lot of people hate that movie, but I said, I don't care. I want to make it. This is what I want to do. And I was given probably the only movie that I've had creative control on that I could do whatever I wanted to. And I look at that movie and I'm like, that's me. That movie is me. It, it's my style. It's my whatever. And then I look at other movies where I kind of succumb, succumb to people telling me what to do. And I look at those and I'm, I can't stand by them as much as something like a repo on a Mother's Day, which I was able to do what I wanted to do, cast who I want to cast and direct it how I wanted to direct it. And I think that, you know, it goes back to, I'm not a button pusher. I'm not. I have a weird sensibility. I have a weird thing of shit that I like. And just to trust myself and make those type of movies, even when others don't necessarily agree with it. And then last question 
is making movies hard. It is hard, but it's not hard like being a first responder hard. It's not hard like putting out wildfires in California hard. Um, those are those are job jobs. Like those are people that are that are you know life or death type of things. I'm playing make believe, so I can't sit here and say, "Oh, I'm so hard. This is so hard." It's not that. It is stressful, and I'll tell you that for me, the stress comes from my emotional, just emotionally how I get. I care about something. Like I care, and so. Like, here's the perfect example. Okay, I'll just give you just a, a, an example. As, a, as, a, as an artist, as you guys both are and what you do, you wear your heart on your sleeve. And so what I do is I subject myself to putting out movies or art or entertainment, knowing that it will be ridiculed publicly for my mother to see, my children to see, my friends to see. And unlike my next door neighbor who's a banker, there's not a Rotten Tomatoes for banking that I can say, hey, you're a douchebag. You have 0% from all of your client interactions, but he has the ability to go on a website and say, hey, so you got 1% on 1111, congratulations on that. That to me is the hardest part for me about being a filmmaker is you gotta learn to, to take punches. And that comes down to that being knocked down 99 times. That part about it, I don't like because I do care. I care what people think. I care what my audience thinks, my fans think, and I care what people think. I have a self-masochist. I read everything. And so every time someone's called me a douchebag, I've read it. Every time someone says that, that Darren Bousman should have a directing card taken away from me, I've read it. And so I think to me, caring as much as I do about what I do is a hard thing because it's part of me. Like death of me is a year of my life. Uh, Saw three is a year of my life. And so when you put yourself out there to be picked apart, emotionally it, it fucks with me but is it hard no it's not hard i, I get to play make-believe i get to go on lavish locations in thailand and stay on islands and hang out with maggie q so no it's not hard but it's stressful it's stressful that you know i could lose millions of dollars of someone's money it's stressful that uh you know that this will live after me and what will it be said about in 10 years Th those parts are stressful but it's not hard thank you so where can people find you and support the film? Um, you can find me on every social media's uh, Instagram at Darren Bowsman. The movie comes out October 2nd. It will be in drive-in theaters and it will be uh, on video on demand. I have this coming out now. I have One Day Die coming out in October as well, which you can find on onedaydie.com, which is an online immersive experience for Halloween season that uh, you basically sign up and buy a ticket and a box is sent to your house and you open the box with us on this Zoom-like experience, which crazy spooky things happen with the shit inside the box. There's that. And then um, I have a little movie coming out next year called Spiral, which a little art house indie flair that I hope you guys support. Um, yeah, and I start a new movie uh, in two months called The called tension based on the tension experience the thing i was telling you guys about um, so i start that in two months so i have that movie coming out as well next year wow well congratulations on all, all the success darren and you know i think this is really great info for filmmakers to listen to just to say like hey keep doing it you know say yes try to say no on the right time and make movies the last thing i'll say to your to your, to your listeners is there is no reason to, for excuses anymore in the day that we live in your cell phone can shoot a movie. Your cell phone is a beautiful piece of equipment that wasn't around 20 years ago. 
You can shoot a movie on your cell phone. You can edit it on your home computer. The only thing standing in your way of success is you and your creativity. So embrace the failures, embrace being hit down, stand back up, and you will get that opportunity. You just have to stay with it. It's endurance. Amazing. Awesome. Those are the perfect last words. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Darren Lynn Boozman and Priscilla Rios from KWPR for making this episode happen. Death of Me is out now, I believe, so go to all the places that you can to find the movie. I'm sure it's Amazon Prime, VOD, all those things. I think it's also in drive-in still, so if you're near a drive-in, go check it out on the big screen. And you can also check out our website, makingmoviesisheart.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesisheart.com, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MMIHpodcast. I am ORP on Twitter and Instagram. Liz, where can you be found? Liz Manischel on Twitter and Liz Manischel Film on Instagram. And if you guys like the show, please spread the word. Tell a friend. We've been getting a lot of wonderful iTunes reviews lately, and uh, those are amazing. So if you do like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Ratings do just as well. You can just leave a rating. You don't have to write anything if you'd like. And finally, thanks to our producers, Greg Holdsman and Joshua Sterling Bragg, our editor, Colby Crow, and the whole Bloodstream Media team for making this episode possible. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Boom. Okay. Anything else I need to do differently? I think you wanted to do... Oh, no. We did it. And you did the cool little finger guns. Okay, cool. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.